Well, good morning once again, brothers and sisters. Hadn't the worship been especially good this morning? Thank you, Dalton Smith and all the great team members who have uh, gathered together this morning to lead us in such a wonderful time of praise and worship <clears throat> and celebration. And I hope that you can say this morning uh, in response to the words that we've just sung that it is well with my soul circumstances notwithstanding, condition of my heart notwithstanding, condition of my life right now notwithstanding, we can say because of this innate presence of joy in our life through Jesus Christ who resides within us that it is well with our soul. If you're struggling this morning, let me remind you before we get into the Word today that you can connect with the pastor. You can do that in real time on many of our uh, social media platforms. There's pastors monitoring that and they're ready to dialogue with you right there in an online chat if you are comfortable in doing that. But if you need some privacy, then be sure to send us an email. You can do that at any time between now and really the rest of the day for that matter. But if something's on your heart, there are pastors standing by all morning long uh, to reach out to you and to connect with you. All you have to do is send an email to prayer.hillcrestchurch.com. Prayer.hillcrestchurch.com. Dot com and know that in a confidential way, pastors are ready to engage with you wherever you are. Let's take our Bibles this morning. If you've got one with you, and I hope you do, we're in Luke chapter 24 today, the third gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the 24th chapter. Several years ago, Judy and I took a vacation out west, one of the best vacations we've ever taken. And while we were there, we stayed in a small but very nice, very cozy bed and breakfast uh, place, and we were there for several days. And while we were there, we breakfasted every morning with a delightful couple from Great Britain. Uh, very engaging and uh, very fun and entertaining to talk with. We really enjoyed those times with them uh, virtually every morning. She didn't say very much, um, but the gentleman did. He was surely a talker, very smart guy, seemed to know something about everything. Uh, that was brought up. Every subject we did, uh, discussed, he could weigh in on it in a very intelligent kind of way. One day after breakfast is over, I looked at Judy and I said, I don't know who this guy is, but I have a feeling that he's somebody very important. And by the end of the week, I gathered up enough courage to uh, ask him some personal information. And uh, as we dialogued a little bit, he reached into his pocket and he handed me a business card and spoke about his work as a writer. He didn't go into a ton of detail, but I did find out that the man was a writer, professional writer for a living. When our vacation was over and I got back home, I came across that business card and I promptly sat down at the computer and I Googled his name only to find out that not only was this guy a writer, he was an award-winning correspondent with the Times of London, one of the most prominent newspapers in the entire world. Not only did he write a regular column for the Times of London, but he was the author of 10 books, the 11th book of which he was working on while he was out west on vacation. And the thing about that was every morning we were talking to this guy as if he was just an average Joe, and the reality was we had no idea the level of prominence of the person that we were talking to and engaging with. There every day, sitting across the table, from one another. You know, that's pretty much what happens in one of the most wonderful accounts of the resurrection narratives of the gospel writers. There's a story at the very end of Luke's gospel 
that only he tells as he brings to a close his gospel account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Let's take a look at it this morning. Luke 24, beginning in verse 13, I'll read some selected verses, but the story basically begins like this. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Jump down with me to verse 25. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So Jesus went in to stay with them. Now, as this important story begins, we're confronted with three very important things. There's a lot that's mysterious, I'll admit, about this passage. There's a lot that we cannot necessarily know in the here and now, but there are some things that we can have assurance about, some things about the story that we can know for sure. One is that we know that this is literally on the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. This story takes place on that very first Resurrection Sunday, on the same day as the account that we looked at together last week on Easter Sunday morning uh, when Jesus first went into the room with his disciples when Thomas was conspicuously absent on that same day. Later in the day, Jesus shows up walking with these two men. That's the first thing that we can know. We can know when it occurred on the first Easter Sunday morning. Two, we can know that the story revolves around two mysterious travelers walking uh, along a dusty road. They were pilgrims. They had been in Jerusalem during the events of the last week of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, that period coming to a conclusion, they were on their way back home to the little village of Emmaus, kind of a bedroom community of of the city of Jerusalem, about seven or so miles Uh, from Jerusalem. It would have taken them uh, a few hours probably to get there on a leisurely stroll. There's all kinds of conjecture as to who these people are. We know one of them by name, a man named Cleopas, but we don't know the other. He's an anonymous fellow traveler. We don't know necessarily even the connection that the two have with one another. Likely, they're just two friends, but really we don't know. What we do know is that they were followers in some sense of Jesus Christ. They were in some sense connected to Jesus. Maybe they were admirers of Jesus. Maybe they'd been around the teaching ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we know that they'd been in Jerusalem as Jewish pilgrims celebrating the Passover and that they'd followed the events of the final week Uh, and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know they were burdened about his death, and we know that they were burdened about the fact that his body had come up missing. That much we can know. 
A third thing that we can know is that they were discouraged because of that. They were downcast to a degree. In fact, Luke will say in verse 17 that they had a sad look about them. And that's because uh, on that first Easter uh, Sunday, they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened, namely the events of the previous week surrounding Jesus' final days. Now, we don't know exactly everything that they were discussing, but no doubt they'd remembered the way Jesus probably came riding into town on that first Sunday of his final week on the back of a donkey with the crowd going crazy, shouting Hosanna in the highest and casting palm fronds down in front of him and casting their garments down. Hosanna, blessed be the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. No doubt they probably had even talked some about what Jesus did in the temple, turning over the tables, driving the money changers away from the temple, driving the animal merchants out of the temple grounds when he saw how out of control things had become there in his father's house. But I have a feeling that their conversation probably surrounded the events of the last half of the final week of Jesus Christ, that period of time when things got really dark. They probably talked about how Jesus was arrested suddenly and the hasty trials and the kangaroo courts and the verdict of Pilate and all of the senseless beatings, the the whippings and the scourgings and the mockery and the, the blood, the humiliating crucifixion resulting in the death and burial of Jesus. Those were the kind of things that I'm sure they were discussing among them until a stranger shows up and inserts himself both in their foot journey and into their conversation as well. That's in verse 15. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now, that's kind of a mysterious statement. We don't know that if somehow there was a supernatural shielding that God was placing over their eyes, or if just for whatever reason, Jesus was not totally recognizable. This is the risen Christ, of course. The two travelers don't immediately recognize him, but that's not uncommon in these post-resurrection appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not told exactly why they don't recognize him, but after the resurrection, many were slow to recognize Jesus in his glorified body. Mary Magdalene in the Gospel of John's account doesn't immediately recognize him there at the term. She thinks he's the gardener, having done something with the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. But whatever it was that kept them from recognizing Jesus, truth be told, there are lots of things, even to this very day, that keep people from recognizing the presence of the King of kings and the Lord of lords when he's dwelling right there among them. Let me offer several things that often keep people from recognizing Jesus. One is materialism, or to put it in the vernacular of the here and now, money. That may be the most prominent thing that keeps people from recognizing Jesus for who he truly is. Because much of the time when faced with a choice of serving the God called Mammon or the true and living God named Jesus, many people will be just like that rich young ruler who's talked about in several of the gospel accounts. They'll choose to follow money 
and leave Jesus behind. Guilt is another thing that keeps people from recognizing Jesus. I know a lot of people so overcome with the guilt of their life and the guilt of their past and the stains of their past that they keep a, an intentional and significant distance from Jesus Christ. They've convinced themselves that no way under heaven, having made the choices that they've made and having gone the places that they've gone and having done the things that they've done, could Christ ever forgive them or could Christ ever possibly accept them? They're just riddled with guilt. And it keeps them sometimes from recognizing Christ when he's right in the midst. Others fail to recognize Jesus because of anger. Anger. There are lots of angry people in the world, angry birds, as they're sometimes called, just mad people. And they're mad at all kinds of things. They're mad at other people. They're mad at friends. They're mad at their mothers. They're mad at their fathers. They're mad at their children. They're mad at the world. They're mad at God. Many people will miss the Lord because they're just mad at life and they blame it all on God. Have you ever noticed how atheistic people Oftentimes people will say that they don't even believe in a God, and the irony is that the God they say they don't believe with, they're totally ticked off at. Mad at the world at a God that they say that they don't even believe. You can miss Jesus because you're angry. You can also miss Jesus because of grief. You can miss Jesus because of a broken heart, because life's disappointed you. And you're so weighed down, you find it hard to lift your head to even give Jesus a second look. But let me give you the number one reason, I think, why people miss Jesus, and that is simply because of unbelief. People miss Jesus simply because most of the time they have a hardened spiritual heart. They're more interested in their own life, more interested in their own agenda than they are in God's agenda for their life. And so because they don't want to surrender their own agenda to the agenda of God for them, they find it more convenient to turn and walk away when confronted with the presence of Christ. They choose not to believe. I once watched a program on the public broadcasting system it's a program on religion. And at one point, a Jewish rabbi, a Jewish rabbi scholar, very smart man, taught in a Hebrew university, was being interviewed. And in the course of that interview, that Jewish rabbi scholar gave one of the clearest explanations of the gospel that I've ever heard in my life. The program has gotten away from me, and I don't know what the name of the program was. I wish I could go back and find it. I would show it to you. But he said in the course of that interview, it makes perfect sense that in man's separation from God because of sin, that God would take on flesh in the person of a Savior and die as a blood substitute for sinners, taking on himself the guilt of sinners and satisfying the justice that the holiness of God actually demands. It makes perfect sense that that work would be validated then by that Savior victoriously rising from the dead. And he went through all of the major components 
of the gospel account of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Having said numbers of times along the way, when I think about it, all of that makes perfect sense. And then there was about a second and a half pause. And then he looked at the interview and he said, but I just don't believe it. Makes perfect sense. I just don't buy it. He missed Jesus. Not because he didn't understand the gospel, but because he just would not believe it. There may well be a touch of that in the minds and hearts of these two travelers headed toward Emmaus. They understood, I think, a gospel about Jesus, but it was not a biblical gospel. I don't think there's any question about that. It was a gospel in large part of their own making. And there are lots of people in the world that don't believe Jesus Christ that have forged a gospel of their own making. And that gospel becomes an idol. It becomes sort of a golden calf that they bow down and worship. It's not the biblical gospel. It's just simply one that they've concocted themselves, one that they've made up to fit their own worldview, to fit their own life, to fit their own desires, to fit their own priorities, to fit their own agenda. It's a self-concocted gospel, one of their own making. And that's the principal reason, I think, why the mystery companion shows up to walk along with these two men. Look at verse 17. Jesus said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Now let's pause right there. Let me just say that we call that last line right there, that is a prime example of what writers call literary irony, literary irony. If Luke were writing this as a Broadway play, that that line right there would be a laugh line. Think about it. I mean, the the unknown person Cleopas is talking to, when he says, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem that doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? That was the guy he was talking to was the one guy that knew exclusively what had happened in Jerusalem over the last days. And if this were a play, everybody in the audience would have laughed when he asked the Lord and Savior that question. Because the audience would have known who he was, but he didn't know. Not only that, that line indicates that the whole city of Jerusalem was abuzz with talk. Everybody was chattering about him, about what had happened to Jesus. Now, Luke's story affirms that these men had the facts of that past week, but something was missing. It wasn't complete. They had a lot of facts and figures, but they didn't understand the gospel. There was one thing that was missing, and you know what was missing? The most important thing was missing. What was missing in their gospel was a resurrected Christ. That's what was missing. That's why you can't miss the resurrected Christ and have a complete understanding of the biblical gospel. There is no gospel apart from a resurrected Christ. These guys know, knew and they'd heard that the women folk had gone to the tomb. They knew that. They, they'd heard that the women folk had seen angels at the tomb, but to use their words, but him they did not see. Christ they did not see. And so to them, it was all very confusing, very upsetting. They didn't know what to make of it. And that's because a gospel without the resurrection isn't not only an incomplete gospel, but a gospel without the resurrection, my friends, is no gospel at all. There is no good news. If Jesus merely stayed dead, 
We have no good news if the Savior that we proclaim is nothing but another martyr littered among the gravesites of history. Someone who died, but only died for a lost cause. There is no good news in a Savior who did not rise from the dead. And again, the irony here is so thick, you cut it with a knife. The risen Christ is the whole in their gospel. And the whole in their gospel is literally standing right in front of them, and they cannot recognize it. But Jesus loves them anyway. Christ loves them anyway. Christ doesn't desert them because they're still standing in unbelief. He stays with them. He loves them. And he keeps walking with them. Now, he does give them a gentle rebuke, but then he sets the record straight. Verse 25, Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets... Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, I think that's just terrific. I mean, to have the living word standing right there with you, giving you an education on the written word of God. I mean, there would be a few things. How would you like for Jesus to physically show up in your study or in your living room or in your bedroom tomorrow morning when you've got an open Bible in your hand and you're doing your morning quiet time and Jesus just shows up and he said, hey, I'm here just to dialogue with you a few minutes about what's in that book that you're reading. Every one of us would get up and dance with excitement if that took place. Jesus does that with these men. And he made it clear that everything in the scriptures that he was teaching them about was all about him. Now, that can happen. Jesus probably is not going to show up physically. Jesus can do as sovereign Lord whatever he wants to do, but he's probably not going to show up physically because he doesn't need to. If you're a born-again follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, he has given you the gift of himself indwelling you. He's already with you there. Somebody shout amen this morning. He's already with you. He's in the room with you. He's speaking to your heart, interceding on your behalf, bearing witness to your spirit. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And so he is with us. And he was with them, interpreting the scriptures, clarifying the scriptures, helping them to understand the word of the living God. I just think that's so critical because we can't. I mean, the Bible says the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. We need spiritual help to understand the Bible. And if the only thing we're doing it is reading with the eyes of flesh, we're going to do as a lot of people do, and we're going to have this false dichotomy between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and there are a lot of people that do that. They see the Old Testament as nothing more than a prelude for the New Testament. And sometimes it's real easy for us to emphasize the New Testament at the expense of the Old Testament, and God would not have it so. So you don't want to have the approach, first comes the Old Testament and then comes the New Testament. No, instead you want to see the Word of God as a seamless weaving 
from start to finish, from the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation at the very end, this seamless weaving of gospel truth from start to finish. Because the good news is a written gospel that wasn't begun with Matthew chapter 1. It began with Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The gospel began with Moses, and it continued through the prophets, and then it continued through the apostles of the New Testament. And all of it, every jot and tittle, points to one subject, namely Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Every bit of it. And Jesus was helping them to understand that. What the scriptures said about him. And as they came near the end of that seven-mile journey, Jesus began to take his leave of them. And he continued to go on with his hike. He was just going to keep right on going. They were going to turn off the road, go into their home. We have no idea where Jesus was planning on going next, what specifically he was going to do. Luke is silent. He doesn't tell us. But what we do know is that these two gentlemen were not ready for Jesus to leave. It's like when you have a guest in your house and they've been there for a while and at some point, you know, they look at their watch and and they say, holy mackerel, look what time it is. You know, I really better be going. And then you look at them and say, what? No, you're kidding. Get up and go. You're not leaving right now, man. You just got here. Please stay a little bit longer. You've had that happen before and so have I. And you know, as I think about that, Whenever that's happened, whenever somebody's been in my house for a little bit and then says, okay, it's time for me to go, and then they look at their watch, oh, man, I've got to get going. I don't think that there's been one time, not one time that I could ever remember that I actually talked that person into staying at my house any longer. Typically, when people make up their mind to go, they typically get up and go. And we're not often successful when we try to stop them. But it's amazing, these guys put to quietus on the Lord Jesus Christ, didn't they? They managed to stop. They, they were not ready for Jesus to leave. Something good was going on, and they knew it, and they didn't want it to end. And the Bible says here they urged him strongly to stay. This is a prime example of Middle Eastern, ancient Near Eastern hospitality to the extreme. We will not let you go. It reminds me of Jacob in the Old Testament. Jacob wrestling with that angel of the Lord, which may have been a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm pre-inclined to believe that it was. And Jacob has a tight grip on him, and what does he say? I will not let you go until you bless me. That's kind of the attitude of these guys. They urged him strongly to stay, probably grabbed him by the arms, one on each side, and literally pulled him into the house. Wouldn't take no for an answer. Now, this is a prime example of the importance of being really willing to seize spiritual opportunities when God gives them to you. And what a tragedy if these guys would have been content just to let the Lord keep on walking, just to content to let him keep going, walking away from what could have been a life-changing experience. Man, if that would have happened, they would have looked back on that and they would have realized they had walked with Jesus, they had talked with Jesus, but the reality would have been they would have missed Jesus. They would have missed the risen Lord and the hole in their gospel would have continued to have remained wide open. 
Sometimes people realize they're in the presence of Jesus and they're so intimidated by it, they can't get away from it fast enough. It's a so-called white knuckle syndrome. We come to the invitation in our church oftentimes and I implore people to come to Jesus Christ and they're squeezing the back of their seats or they're squeezing the back of the pew in front of them so hard not to release it that their knuckles literally go white. And they're looking, how can I get out of here as quickly as possible? I'm convinced that's why we have so many people leaving during the invitation. At Hillcrest and at churches just like ours. Have y'all ever noticed that? Drive some of us crazy. I tell you, that's one thing I don't miss about preaching to an empty room. Nobody gets up to go to the bathroom and nobody leaves during the invitation. Let me have an amen this morning. There's a reason for that. Sometimes dwelling in the presence of Jesus can be intimidating. And if you're not willing to deal with the sin condition of your life, you'll want to get out of there as fast as you can. You think you're doing yourself a favor. You're doing nothing but encouraging a continued journey in your world of hurt wherever you are. The last thing we ever want as a church at Hillcrest is for somebody to hear the word of the living God, for somebody to hear a word from Jesus Christ, but to miss the risen Savior because they refuse to dwell in his presence. And even more tragically, they refuse to invite him into your life. Let me ask you a very important question. Have you invited Jesus into your home What a tragedy if you haven't. I mean, most of us have been home on Sunday, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, uh, day after day after day for many people, quarantined in. What an opportunity if you have, what an opportunity you've missed if you haven't invited Jesus into your home in these days of quarantine, where these days could have been the best days of your spiritual life. Unhindered, uninterrupted, lingering in the presence of Jesus Christ. Man, we don't want people to miss Jesus because they refuse to invite him into their life. They refuse to invite him into their home when he's knocking at the door wanting to be let in. Jesus says that in the book of Revelation. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him I will come in and dine with him and he with me. But not only must you hear the knock of Christ, you have to open the door and invite him to come in. And that's exactly what happens here at Emmaus. For several miles and for a few hours, Jesus had been sharing the biblical gospel. He'd been knocking at the door of these men's hearts. They just didn't know it was the risen Christ. They weren't there yet. But they knew that something out of the ordinary was happening and they they didn't want to let it go. So they invite Jesus to come in and together they sat down to have a fellowship meal together. Verse 30, when Jesus was at the table with them, he took the bread and he blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And then he vanished from their sight, which is another mystery that we cannot explain. Why Jesus left as instantaneously as he did. Probably because the mission had been accomplished. And through this experience of inviting Jesus in and then 
having a revelation as to the identity of Jesus, sitting there at this wonderful and irreplaceable place of fellowship, the dinner table, they finally and forever recognized Jesus for who he truly was, the risen Christ. When our children were at home all during their formative years, one of the things that Judy and I insisted on was having dinner together as a family. We did it old school, man, with a set table in the dining room, TVs off, no cell phones at the table, no television, no telephone, none, none of that stuff. And the reason for that is that the dinner table is, I think, still the single greatest place of meaningful conversation that you can have with your family in your home. The dinner table is a place where families really do get to know one another. Dinner table is a place where you can unpack the day, and we did that. We'd unpack the day, talk about the highlight of the day, talk about the low light of the day, talk about challenges, talk about rough patches, talk about things that the kids were hearing in the news that they didn't understand. We talk about spiritual things from time to time there at the dinner table. A lot happens at the dinner table. Dinner table is a place where <clears throat> wedding plans are made. It's a place where vacations are planned. It's a place where birth announcements are, are delivered. It's a place where significant decisions, life decisions oftentimes, critical decisions are discussed and talked about and reached. And it's at the dinner table where Jesus is finally recognized by these travelers. The centerpiece of the story is the centerpiece of the table. It involves bread, specifically the blessing and the breaking of bread. Frankly, I'm not altogether sure what happened to cause these two to recognize Jesus. Maybe it was because for the first time when Jesus reached out and lifted that bread and then broke it, maybe for the first time they were able to see his hands. And they were able to see the nail scars in his hands for the first time. Maybe when they saw those marks together with what Jesus said, that caused everything to coalesce everything to come together in a way that finally they understood. And that was indeed their own testimony about what had happened beginning in verse 32. The men said to each other, <clears throat> as Jesus disappeared upon being recognized and being found alive, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? We knew that there was something unique about this man. We knew there was something compelling about his words. Did not our hearts burn within us? That always happens when you have a true and genuine encounter with the risen Savior. There'll be a burning inside. Wesley called it the strange warming of his heart that took place right before he recognized that Christ was talking to him and he surrendered his life and ended up changing his world. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. Seven miles back, hightailing it back, probably got back there in half the time. And they found the 11, the disciples, and those who were there with them gathered, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road and how he was, watch this, how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. And you know why that's important? 
That's true because Jesus was the bread. Oh, not the bread on the table, but a bread of a different kind. The bread is a picture of Christ himself, a Christ who said, I myself and I alone am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never thirst again. I am the bread of life, the living bread coming down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. Some time ago, I had a series of conversations with a man in our church who was seeking spiritual truth, searching to better understand Christ. He was not a believer by his own confession, but he was a seeker. He was seeking to understand Christ, seeking to better understand the gospel. And through several weeks of being exposed to teaching and and preaching and reading the Bible and other spiritual material, that person, by his own confession, was not ready. I would touch base with him from time to time. He was not ready. Not there yet. Not there. But I'm, 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 I'm pursuing it. I'm listening. Things were beginning to come together, but he wasn't at the point where he fully recognized Jesus as risen Savior and Lord. Then one day he came to me using biblical language, and he said, I want you to know something. And I said, tell me. And he said, last night, using biblical language, he said, last night, the scales fell off my eyes, and I'm ready to trust Jesus Christ with my life. Isn't that great? Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that unbelievable? That's a miracle, brothers and sisters, and yet it's a miracle that can happen around us all the time. 2,000 years ago, I believe that's what happened at Emmaus. They walked with Jesus. They listened to Jesus. But it was only when they invited Jesus in and fellowshiped with Jesus that they recognized Jesus for who he truly was. Their hearts burned. The scales fell off. Their eyes were opened. And a miracle happened. The gaping hole in their gospel was forever filled because they recognized the resurrected Christ. And it happened when they heard the word, invited the Savior to come in, and gave him a place at the table. 